0: Welcome to Type Safely, a podcast for iOS developers who want to know more about Swift and SwiftUI. I'm Adrian Eves. I'm Rob Sturgeon. And I'm Elliot Hunter. Today we're going to talk about version control, an essential tool for all developers. It doesn't matter what kind of software you build or how experienced a developer you are. You need to be able to undo your mistakes. Version control also allows developers all over the world to collaborate as an unlimited number of branches can be created for different features, and those branches can be merged back together into the release version.
1: Before we get into it any further, I'll introduce our guest by explaining how we met. In the UK, you choose your university major before you go there, and there are no distribution requirements. All of the modules are the same for everyone who chooses the same degree course, and me and Elliot both chose computer science for games. So we were all in the same classes for the first two years of our degree, writing C++ and C console applications, as well as using C to make 3D Unity games. We actually started with GameMaker in our first year, which was a block based coding system that seemed harder to use than actual code.
0: So in between our pause, I'm just gonna say I also
1: hated GameMaker. <laughs> yeah, it's real shit. I mean, we, we didn't we didn't even have the latest version. I think the latest version might have been better, but we were stuck on like one point four or some shit. It was See, absolute
2: shit. That's the funny thing, because the guy one of the guys on our faculty was one of the people who made it and wrote books on it.
1: What? <laughs> he made it. I thought he just made books for it.
2: Yeah, he was, like, one of the main people who was responsible for it. That was one of the reasons why we didn't talk too much shit about Game Maker, because he'd, like, wander in, and we were like, oh, yeah, he wrote the book
1: on it. No wonder we were doing GameMaker. I was wondering why they even bothered to teach it to us, because it seemed so fucking pointless. Anyway, after our first two years, our course had an industrial placement year. I got a job as an app developer at the educational publisher Twinkle, working on their Android and iOS apps. Ellie got a job as a full-stack engineer at Servilec, working on interfaces for huge NHS hospital databases. The company I work for has a very small app team, so our repos don't have a lot of people working on them at any given time. Elliot has worked as part of a much larger team, using multiple types of version control, so that's why I thought he'd make a great guest for this episode. Welcome to the podcast, Elliot.
0: Oh, thanks for having me. We are so happy to have you as a guest on the podcast, but first, our traditional interview lightning round. And everyone is free to answer. What is your favourite video game?
2: Oh. God, that's really hard. Um, I suppose a game that I've sunk a ridiculous amount of hours into is probably Divinity 2 Original Sin. I really love the turn-based tactical kind of aspect of games and the story behind it is amazing.
1: Uh, I'd say for me, uh, I always say the the original Deus Ex game from the year 2000. um, I heard someone at work talking about the like new i guess it's not yet a trilogy but the two games the like the new Deus Ex games and uh i heard them refer to human revolution as the original deus ex and i got irrationally like angry about that i didn't say anything but i was like that's not the original <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's it's a great game
2: did it come out on PS1 or something back in the day. The
1: original I think it was just PC originally, and then it was ported to PS2. Um mm. but by the time it was on PS2 people were already saying well they had to cut down the graphics a bit I think, but people were saying the graphics weren't great. It's Cause like by that time it had been out for a while. So I mean I don't think the graphics were like cutting edge necessarily when it first came out. It was mostly just really good art style and really good writing the main yeah. thing. Really I could... was always going to
2: say it was the aesthetic of the deus ex genre yeah. that kind of made it stand out.
1: It's It was like the first time I think that I felt really immersed in like a sci-fi world where like even though you didn't sort of see everything of the world you kind of just you could you could imagine that the world was real sort of thing. And at that at that time when I was like eight years old that was quite a big thing. <laughs>
0: so a game that i'm really enamored with lately is celeste by matt makes games it's just so incredible they take that uh that 2d pixelated aesthetic and just push it to its limits but also it's so meaningful that narrative i don't want to like spoil it for anyone who hasn't played it but it's just very personal and it's really neat how they take it from a to b the way that they do
1: what happens in it
0: so it's it puts an emphasis on mental health and through the lens of the protagonist, Madeline, it's just really cool how the game represents those themes in every corner you look. What platforms is it on? I think it's on all the major platforms. It's pretty cool, I should probably look into that, I
2: think I've seen adverts for it on YouTube and stuff like that.
0: I think it's on sale for the Switch, like, best $2 I ever spent. Chocolate or vanilla?
2: Oh, vanilla, all day every day. Uh, Rob can probably attest that there have been plenty of times where I like the idea of a sweet thing and I'll have a bite and then Rob has a free dessert.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I thought you were going to say that you... I thought you were going to say that you definitely know that mine would be chocolate because... Oh, yeah, that's
2: blatantly I basically...
1: I always get the dessert that is like a combined... Like, a combination of different chocolates but it's all chocolate. It's just chocolate and chocolate and chocolate. I'm kind of obsessed with it. So vanilla is like... Yeah, not... Appealing in the slightest. Oh,
2: yeah. It's a lot of one way. <laughs> the desserts you eat look
0: like a one way ticket to, to the hospital sometimes.
1: Yeah, it feels like it too. So.
0: <laughs> I think I'm gonna have to go with swirl, just because I just like when I get like. You can't go you with swirl can. You give two options. Absolutely. You, you right, okay. And then say okay, I okay I'm gonna this. go with vanilla then because I only sometimes like chocolate. But I did just want to have the option to have <laughs> chocolate too if I if if I wanted it. You could have re- You literally could have written the question. <laughs> all right, all right, okay. I'd pick vanilla because I only want chocolate a handful of times. And if I had to have a default, it would have to be vanilla. Would you rather write all of your code on the same line or learn COBOL?
2: I would rather learn COBOL. There's something really disheartening and stressful about seeing people write an entire program or method or anything, all on one line, and it's almost impossible to read. So I might as well learn something that I don't know how to use, because I'll at least understand it once I've laid it out.
1: <laughs>
2: oh God, that made my heart rate triple.
1: <laughs> I don't remember which one COBOL is. Is that the one that all the like Im- unemployment databases are on, or is that a different one?
0: Yeah, that that's it. It's it's an ancient relic.
1: I I was really interested in like when it became clear that they were like desperate for people who know it. I was like thinking it would it'd be cool to make like an app that teaches you it. And I like had a look at it and stuff, and I was just like, old old programming languages. I don't even like modern programming languages that aren't like Swift. So <laughs> like I I I don't like semicolons even. So I'm not gonna look at something that's fucking capital letters all the way. <laughs> like, I just don't. I don't. I don't want it to shout at me constantly. That's. Yes. That's not cool.
2: Because it's uh, one of the oldest languages. It's well established in the infrastructure of quite a lot of society.
1: I I just don't want to be the person holding that structure together.
0: (laughs) I think I would go with COBOL as well because the important the ability to write multiple lines and express things in a readable fashion is incredibly important to me, and I would not want to sacrifice that for just one massive. Super Train
2: of Chaos. That's actually quite a good metaphor to be honest.
1: I play a game called Super Train of So Super Mega Train of Chaos. Was it Super Mega Train or did I made put the Mega in there? Are you serious? That's a thing? No, I was just saying if that was a thing, I would play it.
0: <laughs> well, maybe we'll make it. Let's 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 get together. Let's get happening. Now we have to talk about computer science. Gross. I'm just oh, god. What
1: made you want to study computer science for games? Computer games
2: have been a foundation of my life since I was a child. I'm from a village in the middle of nowhere, and I didn't really fit into a niche until my later years, so until then I had sprawling fantasy novels and video games to provide me with that escapism and excitement that I didn't really get. I always loved losing myself in a story and seeing a world full of well-fleshed-out characters, beautiful locations and compelling plots and everything like that. Those are the same reasons why I love D&D so much, well, Dungeons & Dragons. I hope someday to provide this same experience to kids that are just like me when
0: they're growing up, and I'm hoping eventually I can work in role-playing games. And people say there are four pillars of game design, you know, music, art, design, and development. Which of these would you say is your strongest, and which one is your weakest? I suppose,
2: well, that's a really tough one. I'd say my weakest and my strongest are like two sides of the same coin. Art is definitely my weakest aspect, and design is probably my strongest. I'm not a skilled artist at all. Rob's seen my attempts at pretty much any form of art, and I can barely even get the proportions on a stick man looking alright, with or without a computer. But um, I definitely shine in design. The... The user feedback that you can give your players that really immerses you in the game, the structure of levels, menus, interfaces, and the way that you implement difficulty or narrative elements and intrigue and the like, those are the things I really love, and they're the things that motivate me the most when I'm creating.
0: I completely agree with that. I think design is my by far my favorite element of game design. I, I've read dozens of books on it, and I just, I love the idea of uh, building, you know, Uh, creating an architecture designed for people to go through it and to serve that function very specifically. So, like, I get you on that.
1: What programming languages have you written other than C++ and C Sharp, which I already mentioned? Ugh,
2: quite a few, actually. Both in and out of the workplace. You tend to find when you work as, well, when you work on web apps and things like that, that you have to learn a lot of different technologies based upon the code base that you're on and all of the different methods that you have to use. So, just to list them, I've used straight up Visual Basic and the latest one, VB6, I've used Standard C. I've used all the markup languages you'd expect for web development like HTML, CSS, SAS, traditional JavaScript, as well as the ES6 variant for the more modern JavaScript application I've been working on, and also the superset of JavaScript, which is TypeScript, mainly because... On my placement, I was primarily a front-end developer for the Angular JavaScript side of it, which is a framework that is good for making responsive web apps, and I was responsible for helping develop and also build quite a bit of the architecture that way at Serverlec. I've also dabbled in VB.NET, ASP.NET, and .NET Core for server-side projects with them and uplifting tasks at work. Sometimes... Uh, part of my job was to uplift code that hasn't been touched since 1998. And translating it into a modern programming language, and... Let me tell you, that is a time. I've even had to go the other way sometimes, which is kind of like you get a modern language like English or German or something, and you translate it back into Latin. Uh, that's a task. I've even had a gander at Python, you can find a little machine learning project I did on my portfolio. I find it really interesting how we can have so many different languages to learn and choose from. And there's never an end of the things that you can pick up. It's my favourite thing about software development. it's The fact that there's never an end to what you can do and what you can learn. There's always another step. So you always feel like you're going somewhere. Whereas uh, a lot of the jobs I've been in, sometimes you feel like you sit down. And you go home and there's never really any progress there. That's another reason why my web development placement was so interesting because you need to be able to pick up understand and use plenty of tools or languages especially in large companies that are maintaining and developing off of well-established code base. And by well-established sometimes I mean really really good and monolithic and sometimes I mean really really old. (laughs) Web development is like pandora's box it seems quite simple and then you actually dig into the code
0: base and you're like okay there's quite a lot here i work as a web developer and i agree with that statement i do a couple independent projects but also it's like my main job i work at a company called infotrax and i we use a lot of cold fusion which is kind of an a bit of an ancient tool if i'm being honest but it's like H, it's like it's server side but it gives you a lot of conditional control and like and that's nice. I personally like jumping into a project where I get to unleash my javascript abilities. I just think javascript is so cool to use. I know a lot of people hate it. I hate it too at the appropriate times, but I just I like approaching problems with that toolset. Oh yeah,
2: definitely javascript is always a love-hate relationship because it's so powerful, but it's very much like a cat Something's wrong with it and it starts smacking stuff onto the floor and you just shout it like what's wrong? What's wrong with you? And it'll walk off and not tell you and you have to chase it and chase it and chase it until you find it yourself It doesn't give them you the most feedback agreed 100% The, the sad thing is there's so there's so many people in the industry and it's so competitive, but Unfortunately, the nature of the industry of constantly having to learn and improve and change your toolset and compete with everyone else, you can end up adopting quite a fatalistic view of what you do, because it just feel constantly that you're on the grindstone. Whereas in a lot of industries, you can get yourself to a standard and learn it, and then you're okay. Whereas as a developer, you have to constantly be working on things and polishing it, and it could just feel endless, which is... Both the best thing about the job, the fact that there's never a a limit, there's never a point you get to, so it's always so intriguing to see what you can do and pushing those limits as much as you can, but then also you can feel lost in an endless sea, which can be quite
0: terrifying and demoralizing sometimes. I feel like I recognize a lot of that in myself too. So I know you said that you like design, do you like writing in games too? Like, Do you like creating the narrative experience to give to these players. Oh yeah,
2: it's something I really enjoy. Um I do quite a lot of Dungeons and Dragons in my spare time at the moment. I run four different campaigns and I play in a couple. And that involves a huge amount of narrative skill and the ability to weave stories together because people provide you their characters and plot lines and you need to create a narrative around them, an overarching environment, you have to build the world, you have to build the towns and the characters and everything that makes sense, and really read the room and make sure that they're still interested and they're enjoying it, and it's not too predictable, but they can at least follow it along well enough that they can progress with the story. You know, like signposting in a role-playing game, you don't want it to be really obvious what they're doing, but you don't also want them to be wandering around not having a clue.
0: Yeah, uh, as a as someone who DMs, I totally agree with you. When I first started DMing, I had a little bit of anxiety over if people were enjoying it. I would almost break it and be like, hey, how's, how are we doing? You know. And then I've kind of got a lot more comfortable with it. And like you said, it depends on reading the room. I feel like I should ask for some of our newer listeners, what's the big deal with version control? Why should people care? And what is your Git process? And what does that workflow look like?
2: I suppose I can explain it in this situation that's completely different from a technical background. So, imagine version control is a recipe you've been working on. You add like a bit of garlic here, a bit of salt, and like a dash of chilli or something, and then before you know it, you've added way too much chilli and then it's just too spicy and you can't eat it. It's disgusting. But then, imagine you could take perfectly preserved snapshots of every single stage between your tastings, in the recipe with succinct comments explaining why you did what you did, with the list of the changes you've made, things you've removed or added, and why. It'd be so much easier to make a delicious dish every time, right? That's the power it provides you, really. You can experiment safely without risking the project to roll back the coat or working state and then move in a new direction if things go wrong, or reverse engineer why it's broken. Uh, Rob can probably attest that I've had to do that quite a few times at university. <laughs>
1: I was just thinking that like I really want I really want someone to make this app where you have version control for recipes. <laughs> It'd be handy, wouldn't it? I just got sidetracked by that whole metaphor. It's really good.
2: I don't know. I, I suppose the main reason I use metaphors to explain a lot of technical topics is I came from a background where I don't even have a GCSE in IT. So I had to relate all of this technical knowledge that was being thrust my way and I was absorbing and actively learning in a way that wasn't technically first at all because I didn't have that background. I've had to pick it all up as I've gone along. The main thing about version control really is it makes collaborations so much easier. You can have separate repos for every developer and it speeds up the productivity so much. And you can branch off your work to separate features and you merge them together to like, have one cohesive master. It's really satisfying when you see all those different branches from everyone merge into that one complete project that you can release. I suppose my advice for someone who feels like they genuinely shy away from Git and version control in general is try the free GUI Git options out there. GitHub has their in-house one of course uh, is it GitHub
1: Desktop It is GitHub Desktop and it's pretty much the worst one I've Yeah tried.
2: <laughs> but it's still it's still pretty good compared to not having version control What I
1: what, what I love about it is just like how tightly integrated it is with GitHub um I was telling Adrian the other day that like a lot of the time when I want to create a GitHub repo I just tell GitHub Desktop to open a folder and then it says like there's already files in this folder. Are you sure you don't want to create a repo? And I say, yes, create a repo. And that's just how I like create my GitHub repo and then you can just publish it immediately. And mm. then I just dispense with GitHub desktop entirely and use a different UI. But I just, when you try to use a different UI, sometimes like it might not work properly with the whole creation of the remote on the GitHub side. So you can kind of trust that like a first party thing like GitHub will yeah, yeah, know how to create its own remote. And then you from that point, you just, yeah. You don't need it so much anymore. <laughs>
2: Yeah. The other ones that I personally quite enjoy are Git Extensions and Git Kraken. Git Extensions is a really, really stripped back, like minimalist one, but it's really easy to follow and all of the UI is really simple to navigate. And Git Kraken is good just because it provides such a good visualization of everything, especially if you're someone who collaborates with quite a few different people or you use Git Flow where you have different feature branches and a master and a development branch. It really allows you to visualise what everyone's working on every time.
1: How did you find Git Kraken?
2: I found it really... I found it to be oh, the best one. <laughs> I, me- I meant, like,
1: where did you find it?
2: Oh, I... <laughs> um, well, honestly, I found it out from one of the developers at Servilek. He bought himself a premium subscription because he'd gotten used to using it for his personal projects and the company sponsored him to get a subscription so he could use it at work.
1: You don't really, I don't know what the subscription is that good for, but we get, like, a free pro thing anyway as students, right? Oh, do we? Yeah, we do, yeah. The GitHub student thing. Have you paid for it? Cause oh, no, I you, haven't paid for it. That's I gonna, use the that's free version. Say, yeah, you can get the pro version. I don't know, actually, what's the difference, but it's it's nice to know that you won't be restricted. But,
2: yeah, I would definitely say... If you're worried about using version control or you're shying away from it, then you really need to find a GUI. Yeah. They all pretty much do the same thing. So just find one that you like the look of and that seems to make sense to you. And the main thing is they just abstract away a lot of the complicated stuff. If you want, you never have to interact with a console at all. And you still have all the power that version control grants right at your fingertips.
1: Yeah, I... I, the reason I was asking where you uh, where you found it from is that I couldn't remember whether I'd recommended it to you or not. But I recommended it to Adrian, and I got Adrian using it, and I was kind of wondering if I'd got both of you using it, which would be funny. Um, but, I, yeah, it's, it's the thing I love the most. Um, I, think, really I think I went straight from GitHub Desktop to SourceTree, which is the Bitbucket one, and that's what we use at work. And now that I've gone back to the office today uh i'm back on my computer using source tree and like basically i i wanted to get Git crack and downloaded but it was kind of necessary for me to like get used to what everyone else was using um but source tree you know it ha- has all of the features it just it's kind of like windows compared to a mac it's like it technically can do what you want it to but it's just not fun it's not cool <laughs> It's just a workhorse that will do the thing, but you won't look cool doing it.
2: <laughs> I think that is quite a big difference often between Windows and Mac, is that Windows functions on achieving the functionality, and that's about it. Whereas Mac focuses on the feel and the experience. tree is a really good one if you just wanted to get it done, and you don't yeah. mind what it looks like.
1: Yeah. Well, I think they, they actually make a lot of fairly simple things difficult, especially when you compare with how you do those same things in GitKraken. Like, I think merging is kind of a overly complicated procedure. Like, it has this whole, this whole like interface that comes up. It just seems like there's too many steps in the process, whereas, like, GitKraken, you're just, like, dragging one thing onto another thing, and then that does it. It's just, that's, that's all it should be, really.
2: Whereas uh, Git extensions, you literally just click a button.
1: I've never heard of Git extensions until now.
2: Yeah, it's a completely open source version, and it integrates really well with GitHub in general. It's uh, quite bare bones in terms of its look, but it's minimalist rather than ugly, if that makes sense. I wasn't really that happy going from Get Crack and Do Git extensions, but as I started to use it more, I realised how simple it was, because sometimes I would get a bit mixed up with get cracking because while i say it looks amazing and it's really good to use at first it can be quite overwhelming because there is quite a lot in front of you
1: yeah they have it's... well they have quite good uh like tutorial videos on their website which help a lot yeah that's how I'd i learned. Recommend like, them. how i learned like dragging a remote onto a remote gives you like the option to do a pull request and i thought that was complete genius that's that's how i've made all my pull requests in my job you can do the pull start typing the pull request from inside git kraken but then i tend to want more features to it so i just there's like a little link down the bottom where you can say like continue on bitbucket or continue on github and it'll just give you a link to the website of that repo and you can sort of do the pr the way that the website would do it um with all the features that it has there and that's that's generally how i do it but i just like that ability to to go straight from like committing something to writing the PR pretty much seamlessly. Yeah.
2: It's it's definitely a really sleek thing.
1: Yeah. Um was the last part of that
2: question about my process and workflow? Yes. Uh my workflow consists primarily of the the git flow and the conventional commits methodology. To explain git flow in the simplest terms, you split your work into key branches. There's a master branch, a development branch, and then feature branches. Feature branches only directly interact with development branch, and they're merged into that branch once you've completed them, whereas the master branch is purely stable iterations of the sum total of all the dev work that you've done. That is the branch that is intended for release, and it should pretty much only be stable. You should keep the development branch. As your working version until you're ready to release it as a version so normally if you see like version 1.1 version 1.2 blah 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 that is the release branch of a product so that'll be the master. Conventional commits are things I learned at my placement actually it's kind of necessary when you get into quite a large team that you need to be able to enforce a concise but content rich approach to your commit messages because you are often given a task and you do your section of the work and it gets passed off to someone else. So if it isn't clear what you've done, and they don't know why you've done it, often you're just creating redundancies because people are repeating the same work over and over again or undoing work that you've done because they don't know what it does. So it's safer for them to get rid of it and then create their own solutions. you could end up having three people repeat the exact same work for no reason.
1: That sounds familiar.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
2: But, uh, it's it's pretty simple once you get into the hang of it, though. A typical conventional commit structure just follows the format of, like, refactor x lazy loads the data to speed your page load, and then your branch name. So people know the feature, they know who made it, they know what kind of thing you did, so refactor in this case, what you've changed and why. And that simple summary of the kind of change specifics and the feature it relates to is something that i really like and it helps when you're collaborating in a huge team because you might not have access to them it might be a pain if you're working on a team of an entire floor of developers if they have to go track you down and go why exactly did you make these changes on this line or this line
1: i'm not sure how i found conventional commits but um i started using it just kind of voluntarily because like I found that I was doing a lot of commits where my message was like fixed a bug that caused blah 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 and I was always saying like fixed a bug that does this fixed a bug and like you're kind of wasting time and like the the message is supposed to be less than like 60 characters or something oh yeah on the first line at least and so um for me what I do is like I'll do fix or like refactor or something but then it has like an optional scope in brackets after So I'll say, like, fix, and then in the brackets it'll be, like, the class name, or sometimes the method name, if it's, like, a massive method, but usually it's just a class name. But it kind of, that kind of helps me, like, if I'm uh, committing multiple files, it's kind of useful to be able to say, like, here is, like, the central thing that I feel like was the main thing that changed. The thing that ties up the whole concept of what it is.
2: Yeah, definitely. And that's actually a huge thing. It's a little benefit that they don't really emphasize that much, but when you are following conventional commits, it really encourages you to keep only the development that's related to what you're working on in the branch itself, because, I mean, we've all had a situation where you fall into a hole because you found a loose thread in the code of like a little bug that no one seems to have noticed yet and you just unpick it and then you find loads of things. You're like, I'm going to fix everything in one branch and like three changes becomes like 50 changes on like 30 files and none of it is relevant to what you were originally working on
1: having a mega branch that will never end is the most frustrating thing because it ends up almost going all the way back to not using version control anymore trying to do all that new stuff you'll mess a lot of stuff up and then you'll be like well i can't commit now because i fucked everything up i need to like actually wait until i've fixed everything and then commit but then like by then you've done so many changes that it's like this is not version control anymore really it's just like saving something
2: oh definitely And that's why I love it so much, because it encourages you to only work on the thing that you originally stated. Because it doesn't make sense otherwise.
1: When I first started my job, I would do everything on one branch because I didn't want to create multiple branches because I thought that was kind of a messy thing to do, like a chaotic thing to do, to have a billion branches doing different tiny things. And then what I realised over time is that actually the mega branch is the bad thing. And having the tiny branches that do one thing and go back in and get merged almost immediately is what you want you don't want it to be all organized on one branch because then you're not really separating things in your mind and it might not even matter for the project but like just in your mind you need to be able to separate what you're doing into different categories basically i think i've only used git so what is it like to use svn
2: honestly i'm not a huge fan of svn really but a big portion of that could be perhaps because I'm not as comfortable with it. I started learning with Git, and that's my main experience. And, to be honest, at the level I am as a developer, as, you know, a junior level, I don't see a lot of the benefits of SVN. The The way that they differ mainly is the structure. SVN is a one centralized server repo, whereas Git is a distributed version control method, so that has, like, multiple repos, a centralized server, and then you can also get local repos. SVM being the way it is allows managers and other top level employees to have a huge amount of control about what goes in and it feels more stable because only a few people can actually directly contribute to it and a lot of that stuff comes straight out of the box you don't need to add it in but I feel a lot of this functionality has now been added to git you just have to learn how to do it so you know they've you've got pull requests now you can have custom linters that prevent people from doing certain things and it enforces coding standards so i think in a lot of ways git has caught up to it i personally find the main difference that i noticed on a day to day is just how much older svn is in both looks and how it feels i found it a lot less intuitive to get to grips with but it's a lot faster to use when you actually do, albeit it's a bit clunky. You also find as less people have the ability to manage or contribute directly to the repo, less people have ownership and therefore there's less incentive to actually learn how to use it. Well, I mean, aside from what you need to do to pass it on to the next person who actually handles all of the process you can really tell that Git has had a lot more recent attention. It shows with like their more up-to-date GUI programs and just general quality of life features that make it so much more appealing. So you tend to find in industry that a lot of newer companies or smaller companies use Git and when you see SVN it's because you're working on a monolithic code base that has quite a lot of legacy languages or a company that's been
0: around for quite some time. Rob has exposed me to the true force behind Git in a project he's been helping with, with, an app that we're working on called Groundly. What, in your opinion, is your favorite Git feature? My favorite feature isn't specifically Git, but I absolutely
2: love pull requests as their functionality. It's just the remote peer review process that could be done anywhere, anytime, without having to check out the branch. I mean, a funny story that I had is I got an email at half two in the morning because one of the developers who was a peer review on my branch had been woken up by his kid and decided to look at my code. So naturally, a few of the comments were quite grumpy. That's the great thing about it because you get a really concentrated and useful amount of feedback to improve your coding standards. And, in my opinion, it vastly improves the quality of the code going in because you're gating it every turn. You're getting loads of people looking at it, so it isn't just one person going, ah, that looks right, because you kind of, you get the blinders on when you've been working on it for so long that you might not notice silly mistakes, like a typo in a variable name or something like that, or a string that you've got used to access a database variable but you've spelt it wrong and that's like a really annoying but silent error that could go missed for ages and ages and ages and it's really nice to get all that feedback on your work and you also get to see how other people respond to solving similar problems and their own personal coding style because when you review other people's code you can have a look at how they solve things and that's a really good way to improve your skills as well. I always think being exposed to code and potentially learning new ways to do or perhaps things not to do sometimes is always a good thing. And it also holds everyone accountable because it's all visible. And I think that's definitely a powerful feature in and of itself, because there are plenty of people who want to cut corners.
1: You mentioned patches once as a way to share code between developers. What's the difference between patching and just pushing code to a repo?
2: Well, I mean, the functional difference is very little. Uh, Technically, a push commit is essentially a patch in what it does. A patch file is essentially just a file that contains the difference between two versions of one or multiple files. The main time you use a patch though, are when you or the person you're sending it to don't have access to the branch in question that they want to apply the change to. For example, they want to apply a change to a config file that everyone has locally, but it's not going to be shipped on the production code, so it's not in the repo. So what they do is they just email you the patch file out, and it's simply just a
0: right-click on the file, and it'll apply the change. I'm going to be 100% honest right now and admit that I've made some pretty messy errors in Git in regards to merge conflicts and, you know, the occasional accidental wiping out changes. What is your advice for handling moments like these? Because I could really use some good- some good stuff.
2: Alright, panic, and pray to your god if you have one. honestly it happens all the time to everyone in the industry so you just got to accept it as that fact it's no reflection on your skills as a developer at all i mean i remember one time i was working late at the office and i saw a senior dev that just went silent for ages and then just slammed his keyboard and went why why <laughs> and it's because he'd accidentally merged an old version in and just wiped out like the entire day worth of work so um I suppose the only way you could really work around it is uh, my advice, commit little and often so that if you have to revert, you don't lose everything, and to really compare the changes in your merge conflict carefully. I'd advise using one built into an IDE, like Visual Studio Code, because you can get it side by side and it's really visually accessible, and I find that tool personally to be excellent when you're reserving conflicts. There's one on the GitHub website itself, that you can use but that can be difficult to spot changes such as line endings not being the same and things like that and sometimes if you're working on a text file and things like that it could just be that someone put a space in their file and another one put a space in another file which can waste quite a lot of time. Uh, Overall I would just say take your time and focus on attention to detail. The time you lose doing so Will definitely be saved down the line when you avoid these easy mishaps
0: that is really good to know I really appreciate that
2: there isn't really a magical cure-all there's no magical solution to it unfortunately you know the, the, the dev world is you need to pump out a solution as quickly as possible because you've got all that pressure and people want everything now but there are certain things that are just worth spending the time on and when you're resolving merge conflicts or you're doing that final push to create a pull request or just pushing to merge in you just want to take that little extra time just breathe have a cup of tea or something and just make sure that you're certain about what you're doing before you save it
0: i guess our last question for today to anyone trying to create quality games what advice would you have on the subject i know in the past i've definitely thwarted myself quite epically with things like feeling limited and overscoping, I can overscope the mess out of a project. If you if you need me to, I'm your guy. <laughs> well,
2: I suppose something that I've learned from working in a lot of teams with quite colourful characters and memorable personalities is a diplomatic way of putting it, I suppose, is concept is everything. You need to be absolutely in love with your concept, or at least find it interesting. Game development is easily one of the hardest forms of software development you're going to find, and it'll help you push through if you love what you're working on. The biggest thing that I found is you need to prototype as soon as possible. If you can't make the game in the simplest possible way from the beginning, even if you've just got a blob and some walls, then you're overscoping it, or you're not really fully grasping what the game is. At its core. I've seen a lot of like indie games and games made by students where they've spent so long designing the architecture that when they actually come towards the game and they describe the game, their description of the game isn't the same as how it's played. And I, I also find that when you've got something tangible that you can see and something that you can notice changes in that's a really good motivator. For example, um, when me and Rob Developed an unreal game together We had a prototype really early on that we could see and it gave us visual things To work on when we were improving it rather than going "Oh, this variable isn't performing or this just isn't Compiling blah 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 We had some tangible things that we knew were working things that didn't work things that we adjusted and being able to see that change was a huge motivator because it kept us pushing towards a goal whereas a lot of software development you could be held back because a lot of the time you don't see anything until it's finished
1: yeah I mean one of the things we were taught about prototyping is that you need to throw things away basically make a game a certain way and then be like yeah I like aspects of that and then you make it again and you say I like that aspect of that and you sort of end up combining those things into one and we were taught this sort of this way of doing it multiple times, but we never really did it. We always just had one monster game that would just evolve and get complex sort of, and it's obviously not really the way to do it. I think it's probably better to actually have like an MVP of multiple sort of ideas and make all of those MVPs, you know, and then yeah, decide how to combine them into a real thing because yeah just having a mega thing that you're just constantly trying to grapple with, and like once you've got a huge code base, it's so much harder to pivot it to be anything different.
2: <laughs> oh, definitely, but that's the problem it's a, it's a balancing act because often game development especially is a labor of love, and you need to love what you're doing, but you don't you can't be in love with it. Because if you start becoming precious about it and you're not willing to shave things off or chuck things out that just aren't working, you're going to be working
0: on it forever. So today on Community Spotlight, we're featuring our very own Dinesh Vijay Kumar. Dinesh's story started back in university when he made an iPhone app for his final year project. He made an app similar to Passbook to store all of his loyalty cards. He had no proper knowledge of iOS development, so it was a learning on the job kind of scenario. He then had a lot of people ask if they could download it for their own use. Seeing people use something that he built was really rewarding, and he just knew that he wanted more of that. So he decided he knew then that's where his career was going to go. Dinesh considers himself lucky that he's in a career where he enjoys it so much that he doesn't think of it so much as a job. He loves the community aspect of our work and the fact that you're never alone or you should feel like it. There's always more you can learn from someone else or just discussions with your peers. In Dinesh's words, Dinesh's advice to aspiring developers is don't be scared to try out things, even if you're not sure. Nobody has the answers to everything, and we're all in the same boat. Dinesh has created an app on GitHub that hosts a lot of the new Swift UI features, so we highly recommend you visiting the link in the show notes if you're interested. Well, it's been fun, and thank you for joining us. And remember, type type safely. safely.